0: Listening to Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, publisher of ACOWatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co host with my partner co founder, Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida based consulting firm. Our guest today is Yolanda Yvette Wilson. Dr. Wilson is a 2019 2020 fellow at the National Humanities Center and a 2019-2020 Encore Public Voices Fellow. She holds a Ph.D. in philosophy from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Her research interests include bioethics, social and political philosophy, race theory, and feminist philosophy. She is broadly interested in the nature and limits of the state's obligations to rectify historic and continuing injustice, particularly in the realm of healthcare and is developing an account of justice that articulates specific requirements for racial justice in healthcare at the end of life. Dr. Wilson's recent article, Intersectionality in Clinical Medicine, The Need for a Conceptual Framework, is a consideration on applying intersectionality's intellectual approach, how race, gender, and other social identities converge in order to create Unique Forms of Oppression in the Clinical Environment, Professor Wilson is the lead editor of a forthcoming special issue of the Journal of Social Philosophy entitled Exploring Racial Injustice. So, Fred, over to you. Help us get to know Dr. Wilson and her work in the health equity space.
1: Thank you very much, Greg. And Yolanda, welcome to Pop Health Week.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Fred. I appreciate the invitation.
1: It's really a pleasure. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited, obviously, to be talking with you again today. So why don't you give uh, the audience a little sense of the work you do and the areas you conduct research in and writings, et cetera?
2: Okay. So broadly, I'm, I'm actually trained as a social and political philosopher, and through that, I became a biomedical ethic, ethicist because I was really interested in kind of the role of the state and in providing healthcare as a good. So I became interested. I kind of fell down the rabbit hole of healthcare in thinking about these broad questions of justice in society. And so much of what I write focuses on kind of the nexus of health justice and race and gender. My current project is a book on racial disparities in care at the end of life. And so I'm currently at the National Humanities Center in Durham, North Carolina as a fellow where I'm researching that project.
1: And so this whole issue of racial, you know, health equity and looking at the disparities we see is, is really starting to finally come to the fore. How, how do you think we should be looking at this? And a little later we'll get into maybe some of the ways we might be able to address this. What are some of the key issues you're seeing out there? Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, there are people who do the kind of big picture policy work, and I do find that work interesting i find it philosophically interesting but what i also find interesting are the ways that kind of healthcare institutions are structured in such a way that often what you know often unintentionally perpetuate injustice so the ways that um and and even kind of interpersonal interactions the ways that, you know, we don't leave if we are once we enter the hospital or once we enter the doctor's office. And so I'm kind of interested about those spaces as well as these kind of big-picture policies, who has insurance, who has access to insurance and physicians kind of questions.
1: So when you dig into this issue of that interaction at the, at the point of care, let's say at the clinic, mm-hmm. we've seen examples of – disparities around pain and things like that. What are some of the ones we're seeing and, and uh, that you've been able to document or experience?
2: Okay, so the pain one is really interesting. And what we find in some of the research is that, you know, the, the pain disparity, so for those who don't know or who, who weren't aware, it turns out that black patients receive less pain management than white patients do. And some of that is premised on this false idea that black people just don't feel pain in the same ways that white patients do. And some of it is the idea that black patients are just physiologically different, right, that um, black patients have thicker skin. So there's been a lot that's come out in the last five years around these disparities in pain management. But one thing that's also interesting is the role of stereotype and stereotyping patients. It goes into perceptions of of need of pain management. So to the extent that black patients are stereotyped as drug seeking or drug abusing or more likely to become drug addicts, then that also impacts the kind of just the quantity of pain medications that patients, but also what kinds of pain medications. So black patients are less likely to receive opioids. Another phenomenon that has gained a lot of traction in in the popular press is around uh, maternal mortality. So that is that women, black women in particular, who are going into labor are dying either during or shortly thereafter childbirth. And it turns out that there may be some sort of racial bias at play when it comes to paying attention to addressing complications and symptoms that black mothers have sh- during or after childbirth. So those are probably two of the larger ones. One other that I'm finding interesting, uh, and and I haven't seen as much in the in the press around this or as much kind of peer-reviewed resource re- research, but I'm finding these stories of Black patients who are turned away from emergency rooms or what ER wait times are looking like for Black patients. So I think you and I were speaking just last week about you know a young woman who had been in the ER who showed at the ER with chest pain. And, and turned out to have had a history of an enlarged heart and waited so long that she decided to leave and go to an urgent care place where she actually died at the urgent care. So, so these kinds of moments of trying to get help, what it looks like when uh, black patients report symptoms, either through pain management or complications after childbirth or even just showing up in emergency room, how does that treatment look for black patients?
1: Yeah, and I mean it's documented. It's well documented now, whether it's in issues of maternity and preterm deliveries or, or, you know, maternal deaths of the mother, et cetera. And that case last week, it's it it's just out there. I guess everywhere in a sense is is the best way to put it. And it's Mm -hmm. it's based on what I mean. What you know is is this. The, these false beliefs we have, this racism that's coming out through the, through this mechanism. How how is that, and what do we, what should we be looking to do about it, or how do we go after that?
2: Yeah. So one suggestion is that you know some of these interactions may be a result of implicit bias on the part of healthcare providers. So that is this idea that unconsciously healthcare providers look at black patients differently or think about black patients differently or for, what, for any number of reasons, don't take black patients as seriously. Another thing that I think is kind of interesting, actually this is one of the chapters in my book. I have a book chapter called In Praise of Difficult Patients, and I've kind of started giving talk around this idea that sometimes norms of comportment play a role in how patients are perceived. So to the extent that black patients, present in ways that healthcare personnel personnel recognize as appropriate ways, the appropriate way to report symptoms, the appropriate way to come into the hospital, the appropriate people to accompany one in a hospital, then that can affect the kind of treatment that one gets in a hospital, the kind of care that one gets. And so I think that certainly some implicit bias training might be in order. It turns out that implicit bias training seems to have mixed results according to the data I've seen, but also just digging down into these kind of broader social characteristics of what healthcare personnel think of as the appropriate patient or the good patient who is worthy of the kind of respect and attention. And often we find that that's not black patients.
1: That raises a really interesting question in my head. So a few you know, years ago, I did these chronic disease management programs in Medicaid. And we were working with, obviously, mm-hmm. poor individuals in many communities, the majority of them were African American or black. And, and we were, at, at times we found they couldn't get in to see the doctor. You know, they would call mm-hmm. and couldn't get in when they needed to. So we mm-hmm. began to talk with them and teach them how to explain their symptoms. But I think mm-hmm. what you're saying mm-hmm. is. Maybe we need to change the receipt, the person receiving that language versus change the person who's giving that language out. In other words, change the doctor's reception ability versus change the patient. Is that what you're getting at?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what's interesting is, you know, it's not just the doctors. You know, I think a lot mm-hmm. of attention gets paid physicians because they're the ones who are perceived as being, you know, in control or on the front lines. But mm-hmm. it's nurses, it's nurse assistants, yes. it's even the front desk staff, right? Because when you're trying Correct. to call to make a physician's appointment, you're talking to, you know, the person, the medical assistant or or the receptionist, right? And so I think, you know, some of the the bias plays out even before you get to see a doctor, and that's one thing that, you know, that I think about in this chapter. It's how certain information about patients is passed along well before the clinician even enters the room.
1: I mean, that's a fascinating way to look at it. Now I kind of feel bad about what I was doing, in a sense, <laughs> back in the you know, Uh well, because we knew the nurses no,
2: thing I mean, I think it's important that patients are armed with information and understand um, how to communicate in a language that is more likely to have them heard, but at the same time, I don't think that this is a unidirectional issue. I see that you know on the provider side that there's a lot of work to be done, and certainly, if you're going to be a provider in diverse communities, then you need to be aware of the, the cultural nuances of the spaces that you're working in and practicing in.
1: Right. And, and it sort of gets to this point that, that Dr. Kaveh Safavi, who's the, he's the managing director of, of health, I believe, for Accenture, said at one of our conversations around health literacy and said, it's not so much that we need to get the, the patients, the individuals, health literacy up. We as an industry need to take ours down and meet them where they're at. And that's what you're getting at is having a better sense mm-hmm. of understanding of how this individual communicates so that you can make the appropriate decision. Say, you know, they really are sick. they I need to get them in now.
2: Absolutely, because the other thing that we find, you know, there have been a couple of really high-profile cases on the maternal side. So, for instance, Serena Williams and Beyonce, right, no one would argue that these are two women who didn't have access to health care who, <laughs> you know. Right. <laughs> have the resources to have the best healthcare money could provide and yet both of them told stories of their recent birthing experiences where there were serious complications and I, Serena Williams, I'm not sure about Beyonce with the twins, but but Serena definitely almost died, right? She has this history of a mm-hmm. clotting disorder right. and you know, as she's reporting her symptoms and reporting these complications the nurses are telling her, well, you know you've just been heavily medicated or it's not really that big a deal, so so just this, this notion that that greater access to health care, that greater financial resources, or even greater health care literacy will protect you, it turns out, according to the numbers, that that doesn't seem to be the case as much for black women. Mm-hmm. Even middle class and upper class black women in terms of socioeconomic status. Seem to have worse health outcomes than the poorest white women who don't have high school diplomas, and so that you know that says something about
1: the, system. the state of who
2: gets believed and how and how yeah. patients are treated, which is why I think it's a mistake to ignore the provider side.
1: As we think about that, we've done, you know we have these programs we did. these oh we're going to call a one-day educational program big bring everybody in and talk about this or we're you know we're starbucks we're going to shut down for a day and work on this or you know it, yes. it seems like many of these approaches and you even mentioned trying trying to put it puts a bias training in has had mixed results are are there things you've mm-hmm. seen out there that do work or things we could be doing that that we haven't considered yet
2: so i think that one thing that has happened is this kind of thinking has to permeate every Mm -hmm. level of the kind of patient interactions and and what happens with providers, and it has to permeate how clinicians and other healthcare personnel are educated and trained, right, to the extent that you have a kind of one-day implicit bias training or that some cultural sensitivity courses are, you know, a one-semester elective, that, right, even doing that suggest how important people think it is or isn't to know these things. And so Mm -hmm. what you end up with is a selection bias of kind of preaching to the choir, right? People who are already interested in this may sign up for the elective. Or, you know, if the implicit bias training is mandatory, you know, everybody will kind of begrudgingly go to the training, and only the people who really want to be there will pay careful attention. But if from the ground up, if institutionally, healthcare institutions take the position that no this is really important we are in crisis and we need to rethink how we're treating patients how we're interacting with patients and what assumptions we're making about patients then i think the message goes out that oh okay this is something that people are taking seriously mm-hmm. so yesterday i was just at the american or the aCOG american college of obstetrics and gynecology presenting on Implicit bias in healthcare, and the, to the patient safety council, which is their kind of committee that really thinks about having good outcomes for patients in terms of kind of preventable safety issues. And you know, they have taken a position, an explicit position, that look, the maternal mortality numbers are crisis numbers, and we need to do whatever we need to figure this out. And you know, I would hope that you know, different specialties. Don't have to wait until they're, till they perceive a crisis to think about this. But, you know, it is important that ACOG is taking this position that, no, we need to get serious about bias or, or get to the root of whatever happening and make sure that patients are healthy and have healthy outcomes to the extent that we can do what we can do to ensure that.
1: Yeah, actually, that's fantastic here, ACOG, getting into that, because we've known about that whole issue for a long time, and now Mm -hmm. at least the organization's case, and that's that's fantastic here, they're taking a look at that. I know, you know, in the work I did Mm -hmm. in Mississippi, you you know, that whole state, in essence, sort of suffers from this, because given the high number of African Americans in that state, the poor socioeconomic status, it's just like a a Mm -hmm. lab in a sense to see this happen and and probably a major Mm -hmm. factor in why those numbers for that state are so poor. So anything we can do to kind of influence that and move it in the right direction is fantastic. And I also know we touched upon this whole issue of bias within artificial intelligence. It just came out one of those, you know, AI programs that was determined for the hospital to be biased and that it it essentially said that individuals who were were black, who were equally as ill as those who were white, were actually less ill based on how they'd set up that whole artificial intelligence algorithm. And so you see it beginning to infect everywhere in a sense. Obviously something we really need to look at.
2: Yeah, I'm happy that the state of New York kind of decided, look, we need to investigate this. We need to figure out what's happening here. So I would like to see a broader, like this just becomes systemically how we think about healthcare and patients.
1: Right. And one of the other issues that this raises around is the whole issue of clinical trials and studies and representation of various groups within those studies. So perhaps we can delve into the lab, mm-hmm. that a little bit where the and your thoughts on that and how do we how do we open up these studies and get not only from the study side of it but also from the community side who have said, well I don't know that I necessarily want to get involved in these. I know what happened back at tuskegee it's or, so how do we go about trying to influence that sector
2: yeah, so you know i I also think I have a chapter in the, in the book on trust that i'm mm-hmm. that I'm working on and i and Think that trust does play a role here. Uh, you mentioned Tuskegee and kind of the legacy and shadow of, of Tuskegee. For the listeners who may not be aware, it was a large study it was uh, on uh, the, the effects of, of of untreated syphilis, and the study patients were black men and the Tuskegee experiment occurred from 1932 to 1972, and of course, during the time, penicillin became the standard treatment for syphilis, but these men were denied treatment, and so there are all sorts of ethical issues around that. One thing that I like to tell my students when we talk, you know, as important as That is, I think, sometimes the conversation around this doesn't really think about the full ripple effects of what was happening in Tuskegee, Alabama. And so you have these men who are in the study, and they have partners. And, you know, their partners are having children. And this study lasted from 1932 to 1972. So I'm not elderly, but I was born in 1975. You know, you know. Mm-hmm. so so the so study just ended years before I was born. I'm in my 40s. And so to think mm-hmm. about, you know, that I could have direct connections with that. And some of these people moved out of Tuskegee, Alabama, you know. So some of the study participants, and I say participants very loosely because, you know, right. it, it wasn't a consensual study in the way that we think about informed consent now, but not all of them stayed in the Tuskegee, Alabama area. So you have people who moved to Chicago and followed the migration patterns that a lot of black people had moving north. And so this becomes, you know, a, a public health concern in a different kind of way. But having said that, yeah, there there is a kind of a looming large, and Tuskegee becomes kind of the contemporary example that, that a lot of people can immediately grasp and wrap their heads around. But it's not the only incident, and certainly right. in many regions of the country African-American communities in particular have very strong historical memories of the institutions in their communities not serving them properly or mm-hmm. thinking of them just as research subjects. So I'm in North Carolina now. did my graduate work down here, actually. So this is my second time living in the Raleigh-Durham area. And I remember a lot of African-American communities had very negative views of Duke. And, you know, to be here as a graduate student and to actually have started my career at Duke, where my mostly white colleagues saw Duke's presence as, you know, an amazing thing here. Like, oh, my gosh, I can get this cutting-edge medical care. A lot of the black folks in the surrounding community didn't feel that way. There's this kind of Mm -hmm. longstanding perception of, oh, (laughs) and, in fact, the actual language is, oh, I don't want them to send me to the district.
0: Right. <laughs> so so there's
2: this right, as so though two family was literally gonna be the ones who were experimenting on you. But but yeah, there was this perception that, you know, no, we don't we don't wanna just be research subjects or we don't wanna just be practiced on so that white people can actually receive the benefit of the things that, you know, medical researchers learn after practicing on us. And I guess all of that to say You know, sometimes I sit in rooms and the mistrust factor is not taken as seriously as it should be, that, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this, again, here's where the subconscious bias stuff comes in, this perception that, oh, these black people are just irrational or they just don't know any better, and if we just did a better job of explaining to them that this is a good thing, that they would all get on board with these research projects. And so I think, once again, you know, people on the research side have obligations to take seriously what mistrust looks like, what the historical Mm -hmm. reasons are, and to take seriously that, no, this is actually quite a rational response. And, okay, so now what can you do on the research side to facilitate that so that folks might want to participate? And then, you know, a kind of broader research ethics question becomes, and then what are the obligations once we see it concluded? 'Cause we do know mm-hmm. that in a lot of black populations who participate in these studies are only doing it because it's their only shot at health care. Right. So right. what you know, what are the obligations? are there obligations once the study is concluded or you just say, Oh, thank you for letting me look at your data for a couple of years. Hope you're okay, <laughs> go with God. You know? So
1: hmm.
2: So that becomes um another aspect I think.
1: It's sometimes it just seems overwhelming. I know we talked about some ideas about potentially applying population health to this issue. Are there are there places you feel like are doing a better job that others could emulate?
2: Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, what I think, what I find interesting is there there a, a lot of the grassroots work is kind of mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. So I'm seeing these organizations, like, you know, to go back to the maternal health question, like Black Mamas Matter, uh-huh. right, of thinking about what prenatal care looks like, what support looks like, what, you know, talking to providers looks like. And and so I think that we're going to need to look at and think about the, the researchers and scholars and community activists and workers who are, who take seriously kind of racial inequities in healthcare. care and, and look at them to lead the way right I mean the mm-hmm. the cutting edge work in this area might not come from Harvard in fact I can tell uh-huh. you it's not going to come from Harvard <laughs> <laughs> right now, so, that,
1: you know, that makes that, good that, sense that, so look uh, towards raise you
2: know, raises questions of, of pedigree and <laughs> and the halo effect that comes from certain kinds of individuals
1: absolutely so really look to the in, in essence, it's look back to the community. Those who are trying to get stuff done on a uh, on a local basis, and with their often on folks. a shoestring
2: budget. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, and
2: yeah. and I think I often find that those are often much more interdisciplinary in the sense of you know you'll have social workers and and PhDs and MDs and RNs and people with no degree at all, <laughs> you know. All working together as equals and and thinking about this project or, or this problem, you know I know that you 've done kind of community mm-hmm. level work. Did you find that in your in your work in a different way than say academic medicine looks mm-hmm. right and academic medicine or academic research is a clear hierarchy
1: yeah and and as you pointed out, I think oftentimes the most powerful Relationship or person in that program that we did was the the lay health worker, the individual from the community, the promotora that mm-hmm. we had going out into the field, you know, and working with their mm-hmm. with their community and and being accepted and obviously understanding better how to how to recognize when somebody said ABC that meant this, you know, and and being able to help them uh, improve mm-hmm. their lives and improve their health. So I think that's a that's a great point, mm-hmm. and maybe we take that and grow that stuff out up into the more formal healthcare system in a sense.
2: You know, I don't want you to think or any any of the listeners to think that I'm cuckooing on <laughs> a formal method is, you know, formal health yeah. methodologies and research. And stuff. I wouldn't have gotten a PhD if I didn't take that seriously. I just think that, you know, sometimes the academy can be a little bit resistant to change, and mm-hmm. I also think that, you know, because this has been a deep concern for a lot of African American communities for much longer, I think that many of there's been a lot of trial and error in figuring out what works for a lot longer. And I also think, you know, there's a place for kind of research and study design. There's a place for those of us who just kind of kind of think through conceptually what the issues are. I mean, I guess I'm more of the conceptual person and not necessarily the the quantitative person, but Mm -hmm. I, I do think that there's a place for a lot of different people to contribute in lots of different ways.
1: Well, I I couldn't agree with you more, Yolanda. And it's really a pleasure to get you on Pop Health Week. I want to thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I hope we can chat again.
1: Absolutely. We We need to have another conversation
0: in the future. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That will be the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Dr. Wilson for her time and insights today. For more information or to follow Dr. Wilson's work, go to www. Yolanda Wilson, that's Y O L O N D A W I L S O N dot com, or on Twitter via at Prof Yolanda. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Healthcare Now Radio, this is Greg Masters saying, bye now.